Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Keynesian Economics with participants Professor James Tobin, Yale University Sterling Professor Emeritus Economics and winner of the 1981 Nobel Prize in Economics, and Robert Schiller, Stanley B. Rezer Professor of Economics, Yale University. Listen now and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Well, Bob, I guess well, we have a conversation such as we have before sometimes about uh, macroeconomics. And I guess uh, for me, in my lifetime, the big event was uh, going to college during the uh, Great Depression and the, uh, well, actually, uh, I went to college in 1935, but we were just getting out of uh, the worst of the Depression. and. We were getting into a new book by John Maynard Keynes, uh, which uh, promised, seemed to me and my uh, fellow students of economics, both undergraduate and graduate, that uh, he was providing a, a, a new uh, diagnosis of uh, what went wrong in 1929 33, and also. Uh, a remedy, possible remedies that were uh, different from those that were uh, popular in the uh, economics yeah. profession at the time. So that was a a good time to uh, be starting out in uh, in economics. If uh, one was worried about the state of the world as a result of what had been going on. In the early 1930s, and and also if one was fascinated by economic models, as uh, yeah. But his uh, book differed from a lot of others at the time, and I think that he was more expansive. There were many different ideas that were had beginnings in that book, but he didn't center on a formal model as much. Well, this soon. Uh, arose formal models or rather uh, expressing his basic his basic model in in formal terms that done by uh, younger economists in England who were, some of them were part of the seminar in which Keynesian ideas had been developed and tried out in uh, King's College in Cambridge and some of them were other young economists that, uh, of the time, so that there wasn't any uh, any lack of uh, formal models in which to express the uh, the, the ideas, uh, and that was part of the fun. Uh, so, but he didn't accept the constraints that the profession uh, um, traditionally, for example. It would have been conventional back then, I assume, to say consumption depended on prices, uh, or uh, but not on income. Because income is uh, an, a choice variable for individuals. So it, there was something in his thinking that was different, making it uh, maybe because of some notion of sticky prices or uh, human behavior or something that was uh, it would be hard for others who weren't as persuasive as he to get away with it. Well, he had uh, 
consumption and saving depending also on, on uh, some prices, namely on the interest rates or the mm-hmm. relation of future to present prices. He had that which was perfectly uh, uh, traditional. And, uh, but I think the reason he had uh, income as a, as a, a uh, short-run uh, determinant of spending is that he was not assuming that uh, markets were clearing all the time. Right. So that there were some, one way to say that he was assuming sticky prices, which makes it sound as if he was assuming something um, strange, was uh, simply that he was assuming that there were, there were times uh, when uh, there was excess supply in the in markets at existing prices, or excess. Sometimes there were excess demand at existing prices, and you, it wouldn't, it, it, it wouldn't be reasonable, from a practical, uh, common sense point of view, to think that that prices change so fast and so accurately that there's never a moment of time at which there are. Uh, uh, people who would like to work who were not able to find jobs at existing wages or people who would like to sell something else and were not able to find markets at existing prices. So that, uh, I think that, that's the big difference. So I think uh, a ordinary English language notion of what is uh, rigidity or stickiness is... Uh, not met by uh, saying it is that prices change so fast, so accurately all the time that markets are always uh, in price, uh, in an equilibrium in which demand equals supply at existing prices. And to say that uh, you don't think that's true uh, doesn't mean that you uh, think that prices never change for a year or a quarter or something. So I think that the very semantics in which that issue has been presented to the to the society of economists, I think, is uh, prejudicial to the view. So I don't think there's anything very remarkable about yeah, about what Keynes was thinking about. What classical economists instinctively want to do is write the basic theory of economics that would apply everywhere and at all times so that you could go to another planet and the same Walrasian general equilibrium theory would apply. But Keynes was looking at the depression. It's the thing that I I admire him for is that he was asking, well, there is a phenomenon here and now, this massive unemployment, which had not been a long, it was a new phenomenon, you know, the last 50 years only that it had been seen in, in modern industrial economies that such massive unemployment so you want to start building a theory that, uh, that, that takes its assumptions from the things that we see happening in the 1930s at then time. And I, I kind of uh, thought that was part of his inspiration. He looked around for all the facts, the sense of proportion of what was going on at that time, and developed a theory that came from fundamentally different premises than the classical theory. Well, he's still... Uh... He still liked the classical theory, but he liked the classical theory as uh, something that might happen in the long run, especially if you did something to prevent the worst 
uh, consequences of this uh, malady which he identified mm -hmm. with the with the uh, capitalist uh, economy. Uh, so just to uh, bring it back to what we we're saying earlier, namely income, people, what people are able to sell determines what people are able to buy, what they do buy. Mm -hmm. That idea is uh, one that most people regard as uh, pretty self-evident and not, not something yeah. terribly surprising. Yeah. And uh, that's what he was saying. And so that means that, and the fact that a lot of people don't get jobs for which they're qualified and which under better circumstances would be able to have jobs, that, that too is not uh, something that offends the common sense of most people. And, and also I might say that the uh, the so-called classical economists of the time, uh, like his uh, friend and uh, colleague in Cambridge University, uh, uh, Professor Pugu, they, they were not as extreme as the so-called new classical economists of today. Mm -hmm. they, didn't, they didn't take uh, themselves as seriously, or, or you said Valrhasian theory, yeah. especially in England, they didn't pay that much attention to Valrhasian theory, although strangely enough, they were beginning to do so in the 1930s, as well as uh, paying attention to Keynes. So, so I think that uh, the extreme versions of classical theory that you were speaking of are more creation of uh, of more recent uh, developments in economic mm -hmm. theory than they, they were of those days. Although the uh, Keynes' contemporaries usually had classical prescriptions for what was wrong. They saw there was something wrong and their prescription for what needed to be done were uh, doing more saving instead of more spending, for example. Mm -hmm. And just the reverse of what Keynes was saying at the time. Well, one thing that I was thinking, though, is that Keynes was, it may be hard for people to appreciate if they read him today, that he was unusually original and creative. And one way of seeing the extent of his originality is to look at this literature that developed on disequilibrium theory. People like Beryl and Grossman and Benassi and Flower and the whole range of people developing the idea that there could be a theory of an economy when prices are not market clearing. And he had the beginnings of this theory, I think. And it, probably there wasn't much before him on this. Is that right? There wasn't much before on that. I, 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 I must say that I never really thought that uh, the uh, makers of uh, disequilibrium theory added much to what was <laughs> well, in Keynes yeah. in the first place. That uh, perhaps they generalized the dimension of it, where you have more uh, disequilibrium theory with. with uh, more than one commodity being uh, yeah. taken account of, but uh, uh, I think the basic ideas <clears throat> were <clears throat> were clear enough in Keynes. Yeah. Well, I mean, other things like um, rational expectation. I guess maybe lots of things are in Keynes. I'm thinking of his liquidity trap, sometimes portrayed now as a rational expectations term structure theory. Um, but I mean, I just view him as a, a some, 
he was writing a, a book that tried to expand horizons. It wasn't always crystal clear <laughs> what, what the conclusion was, but it must have been that you appreciated that sense that somebody was really doing that. Uh, <clears throat> yes, I think that uh, not having been brainwashed by classical theory <laughs> before I was reading Keynes, so for yeah. some reason I was uh, my uh, first teacher in economics uh, uh, suggested that I read Keynes. Well, we had a kind of tutorial system at Harvard in, in those days, and uh, so you met on a extra outside of courses. You you met with with in this case a young man who would uh, like the English system. You'd have uh, talk about something you read, and he would suggest something you read for next time, or or write this yeah. little thing. And, uh, wasn't graded, and, uh, so that was a nice thing. And he he said, "Why don't we read this?" Well, I'd never. I was just beginning economics, and, and but he said to read it, so I read it. And uh, since I didn't know um, classical economics that well, uh, it made sense to me. Without, I didn't have any uh, sort of built-in obstacles to accepting it. Uh, so I. Uh, I spent a lot of the time of my uh, career thereafter trying to make uh, uh, Keynesian economics more uh, acceptable to classical economists and making it less objectionable to them. And some of the some of the things that Keynes seemed to be assuming, I tried to uh, recast in a way that wouldn't be so shocking. Yeah. We keep talking about Keynes, although in some sense, uh, I think that we're talking about an approach that he exemplified. Isn't that right? That's and right. In yeah. some sense, what he exemplified was a, a greater respect for the facts <laughs> and other economists, um, less of a concern with elegance of models and more with capturing the, the real problems and the real Proximate reasons for them at the present. Well, Keynes, I think, was a model builder, even though, uh, as you said, uh, it may not be so easy to infer what the model is that he is uh, presenting in the general theory in the book. Uh, but he, he he was a model builder. But he, the uh, various equations uh, that make up uh, a model, uh, which represent uh, Various kinds of behavior, uh, behavior, consumer behavior already mentioned, uh, invest, investment behavior, and um, by businesses, uh, building uh, factories, and so on, uh, financial behavior, and uh, demanding money as opposed to bonds, and so on. All those things that he wrote down or suggested. Uh, equations which describe the behavior that was involved in ways that he thought were realistic, as you say, from his observations and in in uh, in the world, and which uh, uh, were not in violation of uh, of the canons of uh, 
of rational behavior, but didn't necessarily uh, represent explicitly the uh, optimization behavior of a single individual or of a group of single individuals. So I think that he didn't have this uh, methodological pure idea that everything that you write down must be derived from uh, such explicit calculations. Right. The, well, that's right. There, there's so a, I guess he's a behaviorist. I mean, that's I guess, another way of putting it. I guess so, sometimes yeah. you 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 are referred to as a behaviorist. Right, well, so he was a disciple of, uh, of Keynes in that respect. Yeah. Well, of course, I'm torn. There's different. Uh, each model has its own sort of appeal. The appeal of the optimizing models is that they rep, rec, they recognize that people are have objectives and purposes, and that they do things not as a you know as an arbitrary reaction to prices or interest rates or whatever, but with an aim to achieve something. And so there is something appealing about representing people as optimizing. Um, on the other hand, that kind of model has its obvious shortcomings because it gets, rapidly becomes absurd if you try to represent the problem that people are optimizing over. It becomes so complicated so quickly that economists can't figure out what they should be doing, let alone they. Well, and, and Keynes was very strong on uh, the differences between different uh, different individuals, or different agents in the economy. They're not, they're not all the same. I mean, he think uh, savers and investors are 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 different. They have different uh, objectives. They have different tastes. Yeah. They have different opinions about the. Uh, Future of the economy and uh, so on, and, and so they uh, you have to recognize that uh, that there that there is a, a market which brings together people with different views and, and different circumstances, and, and that's the the essence of the market that it, it uh, has people on both sides of it, and it's not the kind of uh, of, of market without any transactions in which prices are set so that there won't be any transactions. I mean, a lot of transactions occur between mm. people who are who do have different uh, attitudes toward risk, different opinions about the future. I mean, Keynes was uh, uh, looking at uh, long-term investment and uh, concluding that it's not easy for anybody to have a, a uh, uh, a rational calculus of what the returns on a investment that's going to last for 40 years uh, yeah. are, are going to be, so that the opinions that people act on uh, have are 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 not are not uh, such uh, rational calculations uh, over over a long period of time ahead, but uh, have a lot to do with with the sort of attitudes toward the future and uh, um, general evaluations of, 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 of risk and hunches about, and hunches about what other people are thinking and hunches about what <laughs> other people are thinking exactly yes so I guess uh, in regard to rational expectations as uh, they <clears throat> have swept uh, our profession uh, uh, Keynes would be very skeptical of, of that. Yeah.
Uh, I was, uh, what you say reminds me of my own work on the stock market crash in 1887. As you know, Keynes had this beauty contest story where people in the stock market are trying to guess what each other are going to do. So I asked people on the, right after the, a few days after the crash, why they were buying and selling on that day. And the answers that I got suggested to me that what was happening on that day was people trying to guess what other people, they, they almost told me the beauty contest story. In other words, you ask people, why, why did you think the market was falling? And they would say things like, well, it's psychology, it's people are panicking. And then I asked them effectively, uh, why did you think, if, did you ever think the market was going to turn around? And why did you think it was going to turn around? And they would say, well, it's intuitive, gut feeling, uh, kind of like I could feel the psychology of the market. I, I'm paraphrasing very, very loosely what, what I thought I read in their answers. Yes. And so it's like, it's plain as day. You know, on a day of a stock market crash, what's happening is people are looking at each other and trying to decide what's the other guy thinking the other guy is going to do. And uh, Keynes stressed this kind of thing, that, uh, and it, it's not something that's easily modeled. And it's something that a lot of economists would rather not think about. That's right. And Keynes actually uh, toyed with the uh, idea and uh, I think almost uh, advocated having a transaction tax. Oh, yeah, that's something. Transaction yeah. tax. Uh, I was just talking with John Dinokopoulos about your last hour about uh, yeah. transaction taxes and foreign exchange. It's certainly an idea that that uh, be congenial to Keynes. Uh, for for that reason, I mean, he he, uh, he was very uh, scornful of, of the worship of liquidity. I, I observe that now that uh, the people in the financial markets uh, think the the greatest thing in the world is to have uh, make assets liquid. Yeah. So, so if you have uh, these very very uh, perfect markets, very fluid markets that you can always sell on, on, a, on, a, yeah. on an instant. <laughs> you decide to sell an asset right now, you can sell it a minute later and it doesn't take yeah. long, long to do it and realize whatever, whatever it's worth. Uh, and so I think most people in the financial industry think that's the great service that they provide the society by making everything liquid. The trouble, as Keynes pointed out, is that uh, things aren't really liquid. I mean, the, the the basic wealth to which these paper claims are, in the end, uh, yeah. the the tickets, uh, they're not liquid. They're they're uh, cars that you can't turn into wheat uh, tomorrow yeah. afternoon, and they're buildings that uh, can't be. Uh, converted into some other form of immediately. And uh, so, in a sense, the uh, liquidity which is provided by these uh, markets, these financial markets, is, is, is uh, deceptive. It's a myth. It's, it's not really there. If right. everybody tries to liquidate, you can't do it. That's, right. uh, and that happens every so often. You know, so so the, 
it, it could be that uh, by interfering with liquidity to some extent, you have you have a sort of trade-off. Liquidity is a convenience to a lot of people. On the other hand, it's a danger to the whole society in certain circumstances. So you have to trade trade off one against the other. I wonder if I can get back to something you said earlier about uh, stressing that Keynes was a model builder. Uh, after Keynes, there were a lot of attempts to make formal macroeconometric models in his tradition. And you have things like the Klein model, you know, the, the Fed model, the DRI model. Uh, but there's a sense in the profession that these models haven't, or at least they're not on the vanguard now. They're not being exploited in academic circles. And there's a sense that something didn't work. I wonder what you think about that. Uh, by the way, you should, you should mention also the Tim Bergen model, which was yeah. actually uh, uh, underway uh, before and during the writing of Keynes' book and, and Keynes' book coming out uh, about the same time as the Tim Bergen ex experimental model did. did. Uh, and, and they're very similar. The uh, Tim Bergen model is a is a Keynesian model, even though uh, Tim Bergen didn't need to read Keynes to uh, did it independently. Yeah, yeah. He, did, he did that independently, and of course, a much more detailed uh, in, in in any case. So, uh, yes. Well, I think it's uh, it's it's very complicated the the economy, and it doesn't uh, stay put. It doesn't. Uh, uh, it doesn't always have the same structure from one quarter yeah. to the next and, and one year to the next. And uh, so uh, things happen differently from what the model says. And any model which tries to say the way things are as precisely and as quantitatively as these models do is, is running into that problem. Whereas if you if you make much more uh, uh, careful and uh, ambiguous uh, statements about the economy, you don't uh, make such obvious mistakes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, but then it's still true that uh, uh, if you're going to talk about uh, practical policies like the uh, budget of the United States government, the uh, uh, the burdens of taxation and the effects of, uh, of one piece of tax legislation as opposed to another. What would happen if the if the government spends more money, or if it uh, does uh, this to interest rates or that to interest rates? And people do have to uh, make decisions about those things, and uh, and presumably they they need to have some uh, disciplined intellectually disciplined way of making the decisions and the models uh, are the best we have uh, for doing yeah. that. And, I didn't uh, mean to say they aren't. I'm saying there is a sense among some people in the academic community that there's something wrong with them. But as a matter of fact, I think you're right. These Keynesian models are really workhorses that are being used for a lot of policy. Yeah, I mean, there, there's this kind of, of uh, dichotomy in the profession between people who are, who are not involved in having to do uh, or help people make decisions about these things. They could be businessmen, they could be uh, 
international institutions, they couldn't be the federal government, and so on. But anyway, they, they are faced with uh, decisions that have to be made. And uh, the, uh, so that, that's... Uh, I think we have to wrap up. Yeah, um, and that's, that's something that uh, has, to, uh, has to be done. And uh, the rest of the profession, which doesn't have to do it, can be very critical of that, but they're not contributing right. to the solution of the problems that the country faces, the world faces. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Bob. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.